Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Heartstock Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Michael P. Masters. In just a moment, I'm going to introduce Mike, and he's going to tell you all about what he is up to. He's a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech. He's also the author of Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. And I have to confess that um, when I reached out to Mike, part of my motivation was that I did see the documentary phenomenon. And it spurred all kinds of questions. So I do have lots of questions that we may not have time for them all. But at any rate, this should uh, prove to be a very interesting interview. And uh, I'm your host, Carol Murphy. In just a moment, we will get started with our interview here. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Mike Masters, and he is a professor of anthropology as well as an author. And he's written a book all about um, his perspective or mm, a take, so to speak, on the UFO phenomenon. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us here on Heartstock. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could start out just by giving a brief intro to our listeners, um, what your book is about and why you wrote it. Well, uh, the Cliff Notes version is that it's about the UFO phenomenon, and it takes a different approach rather than focusing on the somewhat default explanation of these craft and the beings that purportedly pilot them coming from a different planet, being extraterrestrials, it makes the case that if this is a real phenomenon, they're more likely what I refer to as extra tempestrials, that they're time-traveling humans coming back from the future to study their own hominin evolutionary past. So it just uh, kind of looks at the, the form and the perceived function of these craft and uh, ties together a number of aspects of our, our known uh, anatomical changes essentially throughout human evolution and, and sees whether or not those could uh, help explain this phenomenon, uh, the form of the craft and the form of the, the beams that are seen in association with them. And this is where we get to talk about, I guess, why you became an anthropologist and uh, what motivated you to write this book? I mean, were you always a believer in UFOs? Or maybe I should even ask, are you currently a believer in UFOs? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've always been skeptically inquisitive. Uh, my origin story started pretty young. I was eight years old and uh, overheard my my father talking about a UFO encounter he had in Amish country uh, around where I grew up in Northeast Ohio. And uh, yeah, it kind of stuck with me, I guess. And then he got the book Communion by Whitley Strieber. And uh, I remember looking up and seeing it on the shelf in our living room. It was facing outward. And it's those listeners that aren't familiar, the older 
version of the cover had the sort of archetypal gray alien form. And uh, I remember glancing up at it and sort of having this mental image of uh, a chimpanzee or early hominin form on the left, uh, a modern human form in the middle, and then on the right side, this this quintessential alien form and, and just wondered if there could be uh, a phylogenetic connection, if there could be evolutionary shared ancestry among these different groups, which all seemingly share uh, derived characteristics, traits that are indicative of the hominin clade. So um, yeah, it, it was a big part of why I picked my course of study as an undergraduate in physics and astronomy and then switched to anthropology around my junior year of undergraduate. And um, yeah, all my work throughout graduate school at Ohio State focused on hominin evolutionary anatomy, biomedicine, and uh, mostly craniofacial form throughout human evolution and also across uh, modern human groups. So this has, since the release of your book, what year was that, by the way? It was March 2019, so just over two years ago now. And and how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> a, li- a lifetime, I realize now after hearing yeah, your story. But when uh, did you feels actually? Like it. Yeah, when did you actually? Uh, start? I actually remember the exact moment. I was upstairs at the quarry. Uh, There's some sort of event taking place, and I had an undergraduate student working on a grant-funded project, and. And I, I kind of thought I would need some help early on. So I, I looked at him. I was like, hey, what do you think about helping me write a book about time traveling aliens? And he kind of looked at me all cockeyed like, wait, what? And who and, is uh, this that you were asking for help? Uh, Vincent uh, Siragusa was his name. He was uh, an undergraduate uh, researcher working in my lab. And uh And this was October 2012, I remember, to answer your question. So Mm -hmm. between October 2012 and March 2019, I guess, is somewhere around seven years it took. Um, But yeah, it was was a long process, but I'm glad I took the time. There's somewhere close to 400 references, mostly academic journal articles and books. Um, So I wanted to make sure, you know, sticking my neck out there as an academic that I had something I could stand behind and, and be proud of and didn't just throw together last minute. So I, I, I put in the time to make sure it was uh, done right, I guess. Yes. Seven years is a, a lot of work. I can definitely relate and I understand it takes a lot of dedication and passion. And since you're, the release of the book, um, now we have phenomenon, the documentary, and we now know that the government engaged in a lot of cover-up when it came to actual known, true, um, factual sightings. Has this, how has this all impacted you? I know when I first reached out, I asked you if you'd seen phenomenon, and I'm just curious how all of this kind of plays out for you. Well, it's funny. I'm actually in a documentary that just came out on Netflix uh, this week where I'm talking about those exact things. Um, It's called Top Secret UFO Projects Declassified. It's it's been trending in the top seven or eight uh, shows on Netflix in the US. So it's it's definitely getting some viewership. But one of the main things I talk about in the first and the third uh, episodes, it's a six-part docu-series, is... uh, yeah, how how that happened, why it happened, why the government 
would be incentivized to safeguard this proprietary technology that they likely uh, were gifted during uh, the Roswell crash in July 1947. And all of this used to be you know, sound like conspiracy theory, but it's it's not anymore. There's through the Freedom of Information Act and a number of uh, groups, a lot of these documents have been declassified and have showed that through Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, and especially Project Grudge, that there was something that happened and there was a very strategic uh, divide and conquer strategy, disinformation strategy, and just really trying to put stigma around the subjects that people weren't talking about it or felt ashamed talking about it. And and that's well established. That's a, a real historical fact at this point. Um, and it makes sense why they would do that if, if they were gifted technology that's far advanced beyond our own. And it would make sense why it is if they are coming back from the future, the same evolution in our culture and technology is expected to continue and, and continue to accelerate, but we would expect them to have much more sophisticated craft than we have. And uh, interestingly, if it did crash into the desert of 1947 and we started creating it, essentially we're creating the same thing that crashes. There's this sort of temporal feedback loop where uh, the, the machine itself doesn't really have a true creator. It's not us because it crashed into our time and it's not them because it's the reverse engineering of that thing that led to that craft in the first place. But there's no paradox there. Everything's self-consistent within the context of block time. It's just sort of an interesting aspect of uh, what happens in a time travel scenario. Um, we did go back and watch Phenomenon. When you first asked me about that, I, I, I mentioned I started watching it and turned it off, uh, but I was thinking of a, a different, I think it was a Stephen Greer show I was watching that wasn't nearly as good. But yeah, I thought Phenomenon was pretty well made. And uh, I, I met James Fox. We actually shared a table uh, with George Knapp and a number of other filmmakers and podcasters at a conference in Phoenix a couple of years ago. And he seems like... Uh, uh, a passionate guy informed and uh, I think he did a pretty good job with that documentary so I, I retract my previous statement that was somewhat critical because I was I was thinking of a, a Greer movie mm. so the first thing that comes to my mind is DNA testing we've got the craft and we know that this even the material that the craft is made out of is way beyond our current capabilities but yet there's this reverse engineering that's going on. So we in a black box, we don't all really know what's going on there. But I have to ask, DNA testing, that would have been, you know, the perfect opportunity to see if, in fact, we are related to the beings that perished in that crash. Do you know, was any DNA testing happening or has happened? Well, this is where it does start to get pretty speculative because a lot of information has come out about the craft and it's the reality of this phenomenon has been confirmed by the, the Department of Defense um, really beginning in 2017, but especially in April of 2020 when they confirmed the validity of the FLIR, Go Fast, and Gimbal videos that uh, were captured by FA-18 Hornet pilots uh, back in 2004 and then again in 2014 and 2015. And those uh, capture the same thing that's been described in so many different UFO encounters throughout 
the recent past throughout history and arguably throughout prehistory. Uh, the phenomenon's been with us for potentially thousands of years if we can uh, take seriously oral traditions and stories, origin myths, uh, petroglyphs, geoglyphs, cave paintings, all these different things that seemingly depict these same types of beings and machines. Um, but but yeah, I think uh, it, it's changing. We're, we're changing our perception of it. There's a lot that still needs to happen. Um, but we're, I feel like we're moving in the right direction and I'm hopeful that that continues. Mm-hmm. So the top secret aspect of it and the government lying to us about it, do you think that, that at, at, at any point, I mean, it, I don't know, I just have so many questions around this, I don't even know where to begin. Is this in our best interest to keep it secret, really? You know, how is it endangering national security because we're worried that other countries on the planet will achieve knowledge and replication before we do? Well, yeah, it's always the default to go to, well, what about war? What about advanced machinery? What about our adversaries? And, you know, in in the big picture, these little squabbles that we have and the way we try to just feed everything through the military industrial complex for competitive purposes. I, I, I find it all somewhat trivial and, and disgusting, to be honest. Uh, when, when we're talking about something that could potentially be one of the biggest questions of our time, that yeah. we're being visited by other beings from other planets or more likely uh, our, ourselves from the future like that. There's so many ramifications to that and so many interesting aspects. But yeah, we always go to, well, what if it's China? What if it's Russia? And that is important in a short-term context. You know, we, we, we've always been in this arms race and our adversaries have changed. But there's a lot of money to be made, which is probably a big part of why it's been kept secret. Um, our, our military spending, our arms sales to other nations are the highest in the world. And yeah, obviously, we're going to want to protect any intellectual property that we have, and especially if it's something that only we have, if there haven't been crashes in other places. But yeah, I, I think one of the, the biggest negative ramifications is that it, it gives us a sense of distrust in our government. We've been told since the 1940s that these things aren't real. Nothing's happening. It's all weather balloons. It's gaslights. They're gaslighting us with gaslights. It's seagulls. It's all these different things. But it, it's it's not. Now, now they're saying, no, it's, it's actually real. And we've been investigating it since the 40s. What does that do to our level of trust in, in the government? It, it goes out the window right away. So, And it's unfortunate when it happened because you have all of these people that are developing this, these conspiracy theories, just wild, unfounded claims, uh, QAnon and, and other groups, it, it somewhat validates them. And I'm not saying it does in any way whatsoever. They're all crazy. But it, it gives them a sense that, oh, the government has been lying to us. What else are they lying to us about? So I think it erodes trust. And, and that has serious ramifications in and it, it, it shouldn't be that way. We we should have more acknowledgement, even if they want to protect the intellectual property. That makes sense. But at least be honest with people about what's happening. And, and I understand why they can't, especially in the 1940s when nobody had any idea what was going on. We hadn't even left Earth at that point. How do you explain 
something this complex to people at that time. Even now, I think it's difficult, but it does seem like we're starting to. There seems to be some slow trickle of disclosure that's happening currently. Yes, indeed. So we're going to take our midway point break here in just a moment. We will be back with Mike. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and today we are speaking with Mike Masters. He is an anthropologist and the author of Identified Flying Objects. And hi again, Mike. Hello again. <laughs> so I'm just curious, and I'm hoping that we can kind of delve more into your whole experience and words of advice for other people who are taking on big book projects like yours. But before we go down there, what I would like to talk about is why the theory that this is us (laughs) visiting our former selves, as opposed to these are, you know, from our same time, but from a different location. Right. And, And there's other explanations too. Interdimensional hypothesis. There's various interpretations in a multiverse context. There's ultra-terrestrials, that it's a spiritual thing, uh, and others too. There's about 10 explanations that should all be considered. I'm not saying that mine's right and they're all wrong, and it could be any number of them that contribute to this phenomenon. But the one that makes the most sense, the uh, kind of an Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is that we're here. We know we're here, and we know we've had this long evolutionary history, both in our physical, our morphological form, and also in our culture and technology. And if these same trends, these same enduring trends throughout the last six to eight million years of hominin evolution, if they continue into the future, our technology and our physical form is likely to look very similar to what's described in all of these different reports of close encounters. So, As a biological anthropologist, I naturally focus a lot on the reports of the beans themselves, which, according to the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation free study, the largest study of contactee experiences with over 3,500 individuals in the sample, the most commonly described individuals are described as human. They're called human. And second in line are the tall grays, the short grays, the ones that people are more familiar with. But even before that, humans are described in these encounters. So that's a pretty good indication that they are us if they're being called us and described in human terms. Um, And we're not likely to get those same traits on another planet around a different star somewhere else in the galaxy or the universe that has a different distance from its sun, different gravity, different atmosphere, likely a different coding system beyond the four nucleotide DNA uh, base pair combinations that we have. There's so many other factors that would go into shaping the evolution of beings on a different planet. They're not likely to look anything like us. It's not likely that they would find us in the vastness of space, especially considering we've only been sending out radio signals for approximately 70 years. So there's just so many things that don't seem to mesh with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But the the beings and also the craft, based on what we know 
and looking at the evolution of our understanding of how we would create closed timeline curves, how we would actually travel backward in time, the form of these craft seem to have that function, and specifically the disc-shaped craft that are so commonly seen in these UFO reports. So if we put all of this together, it just seems to be the simplest explanation for the phenomenon. So when you started writing the book, um, you mentioned that you had, you know, some assistance. Um, did you have a mentor or somebody that um, was an expert in writing books? And how did you fund it? Right. No, uh, I kind of sucked at writing books in the <laughs> beginning. I'll be honest about that. And a lot of writers will tell you this, that you, it's really just about editing. It's about rewriting. It's You end up rewriting the same book about seven or eight different times uh, throughout the the revision process. And, and actually, I had two research assistants at first, and I funded them through my IDCs. When For those that aren't familiar, it's an indirect account. And I already had students working on other projects. So my IDC account can be used for other research or materials and supplies. Um, so I paid them to do this other work through my research funding that was personal use. And I didn't really study the UFO phenomenon that much. I was interested in it, but I didn't honestly know much about it uh, back in 2012. So my research assistants mostly were looking at UFO accounts, reports, and just kind of compiling information for me that I could use as a basis and to see if this even made sense still. It made sense in my mind, but until you really look at the details of these encounters, it's hard to make any informed statements about it or how this model might fit. And a, a new book I'm working on right now goes even farther and uh, actually looks at abductions and contactee encounters in the context of this extratempestrial model and also the others I mentioned, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, interdimensionality and otherwise. So so yeah, there was kind of uh, a big game of catch up at first just to, to learn more about UFOs. And, and at that time, it sounds weird to say this, but at that time, even nine years ago, it was still highly stigmatized. It wasn't okay to talk about this or to be researching this. So there was a period where I thought about publishing under a pseudonym or just trying to detach myself from it for fear of retribution or, or stigma, shame, ridicule, all of these things that come with it. But yeah, it was, it was a long process, but it was fun and rewarding and interesting. And the last two years since have been uh, really fun as well. So I'm, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I think there's a lot you can learn from just doing it. I think that's where most of it is. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have really even an author who, well, I guess Kurt Vonnegut is probably someone that I would put up there as someone who's, who's writing I really appreciated, but it obviously didn't work for a more academic style of writing. But yeah, no, most of it just came through revisions, hiring informed people as editors, uh, beta readers. It was peer reviewed by three different people with PhDs, uh, one with a background in quantum mechanics, one another biological anthropologist, and then a PhD in evolutionary biology. So a, a lot of its evolution came from the feedback that I got from those people. And then when you, it was time and the book was finished, how did you get it out there? I'm listening to it on Audible myself. 
was that expensive or challenging? Well, I, I actually got very lucky in the sense that a master's student was looking for a project in uh, professional and technical communications. And she had the option of either doing a promotional pamphlet for the carousel or formatting my book, essentially. <laughs> and and we had to sit down and I was like, you know, this this is a big project. But she decided to take it on and, and she did an awesome job. Her name's Erica and I was quite happy to have her. She did, uh, she was starting from scratch, didn't know anything about publishing or formatting. Uh, she's done a lot of editing in the past, but this was all new to her and we kind of just suffered through it together. She suffered more <laughs> than I did, obviously. But um, yeah, so that, that was a big part of how I got it out there. Um, I hired freelance editors as well. And then she did the the formatting for the ebook and the uh, paperback. And then I did the audiobook recording, mixing, and mastering. I have a, a background. I've had a band in town since 2010 called the Red Mountain Band. And we recorded an album back in 2016. So I had the software and the equipment from that and just used that for recording the audiobook. And then, yeah, put it all together and, and put it out through Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, Google Books, invited me to sell through them a couple months later. So, yeah, it's, it's quite the process, way more involved than I ever thought it would be. And do you have any advice? We've got about three minutes left. Words of advice for other folks out there taking on such a project themselves? Well, I think the biggest part is having a plan in place. I got so many rejection letters from publishers and agents who just, they thought this was too far out there. I didn't have an author platform and you can't have an author platform until you're an author. It's this catch 22 chicken and egg thing. So I not only took the rejection, but also looked at why I was being rejected and then tried to focus on doing those things myself. So I put a, a long-term plan in place about what I would need, who I would need, who's better at these things than I am, and then tried to just build a team of people that could help with the end goal being to get this out there. I hired a PR firm, a marketing firm to help with the initial press release and the back matter and the bio and a lot of these things. I had them help me write that. So really, I think my biggest advice would just be to identify what you're good at, identify what you need help with, and then try to outsource as much as you can to people that can do it better than you. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that helped me to to be successful in this regard. And you mentioned your next book. When can we anticipate that coming out? Well, it's actually with my beta readers right now. I should be getting it back pretty soon. And then I'll have <laughs> probably four more rounds of edits on that. But I'm hopeful it'll be out by early next year. It, it might actually even be the exact same date as the last one, just three years later. So probably early 2022, I would say. Yes. And how might our listeners carry on this conversation further with you and find your work and get more involved? Well, I've got a website, michaelpmasters.com. Right now, it's just this book. I haven't put anything else 
out about the new book yet, but it's got links to interviews, speaking engagements. I'll be giving a keynote talk at the McMinimins UFO Festival in Oregon next month. And I've been doing a lot of TV and documentary stuff, a lot of interviews, and there's links to a lot of that on there. It's also a contact page in case anybody wants to get a hold of me, just michaelpmasters.com. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being on Heartstock and sharing your story. And gosh, this is just, it's like the planets are, are lining up and uh, I can't wait to hear more myself. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. It's an interesting time to, to be a part of this conversation. The UFO phenomenon is real and really interesting. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on to, to talk about, Carol. It's been great. And as always, we shall see you next week. I'm Carol Murphy, and this is Hard Stock. Peace. Hardstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. <laughs>